fatigue syndrome, and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte. And hello everyone, this is Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist with another episode of the Candida Chronicles. And just to remind everyone, the book of the same title, the Candida Chronicles, the first volume is now available, written by yours truly, on Amazon.com. This is the first book that goes over the Biamonte method, which to my knowledge is the only successful time and true method of eliminating Candida and handling all of the associated syndromes to Candida. So the book is now available on Amazon.com. You would be wise to get a copy and go through the book, whether you're trying to self-treat or whether you're a patient at the Biamonte Center, the book is an invaluable manual to have. Also not a bad gift idea to buy for a friend who's suffering with this condition, where it's not necessary to, because the technology does exist to handle candida. Today we're going to be discussing hormones. The purpose and intent of this podcast today is to give you a very good overall look uh, and probably more in-depth at hormones than uh, you would normally get. I will virtually guarantee you that by the end of this podcast, you, the listener, will probably know more in some total about hormones than most endocrinologists and most alleged experts on Park Avenue. Because there are many aspects of hormones which these experts do not know and do not apply. Let's first talk about what a hormone actually is. Because the term hormone is used very frequently, it gets kicked around, and I think a lot of people at this point have their own invented definition of what a hormone is. In actual fact, the basic definition of hormones from most medical dictionaries would tell you that a hormone is a chemical messenger that's secreted into the blood and it's secreted into the blood by a a gland which makes the hormone and this hormone is actually a chemical messenger that carries information to the different organs of the body and the tissues of the body to help them perform their functions you could say to exert or stimulate their functions today we're going to be going over the different types of hormones and what they do But the thing for you to know at this point, as far as what a a hormone is, it's a chemical which is secreted into the blood that tells different tissues and organs to do something. Without these hormones being produced, these glands and tissues would have much less uh, impetus to do something. So that's the first thing as far as what a hormone is. Hormones relate to each other in a a very interesting fashion. And we're going to look at this in terms of two groups. 
adrenal-related hormones, which we would call uh, the more, let's say, corticoid steroid hormones, adrenaline-related hormones, versus reproductive hormones. So let's first look at the endocrine hormones. The key hormones that we have from the adrenal glands that are produced are DHEA. DHEA is one of the most interesting because DHEA then converts over to reproductive hormones. And this is why I want to start with DHEA first because we could think of DHEA as being uh, the great go-between. DHEA is actually a hormone which, though it's produced by the adrenal glands, goes over the aisle to the reproductive hormones. And you don't find very many reproductive hormones coming over <clears throat> to the side of the aisle as DHEA and the endocrine hormones. So the body makes DHEA. DHEA has various functions. It acts as an antioxidant. It helps your immune system. It helps your heart and your muscles be strong. It's converted itself into testosterone. It has a direct line of conversion from DHEA. I'm going to not go through every step because that would be more than you actually need to know, but I'm going to give you the basic idea. We have DHEA converted to androstenedione, which is the which was marketed years ago and became a very popular uh, supplement for athletes. Androstenedione is a very um, close step from testosterone. So you had many popular athletes back in the 80s and the 90s, including Mark McGuire, the, the home run king, and various people taking androstenedione to convert it over to testosterone for the benefits of testosterone. We have DHEA being converted to estrogen, the female hormone, also converted to progesterone, also female hormone. Keep in mind, men do have some estrogen and progesterone, but they're largely female-oriented. The next hormone we're concerned with from the adrenal glands is cortisol. Cortisol and DHEA directly oppose each other. As one goes up, it pushes the other down. They try to regulate each other. Cortisol is like a slow-acting adrenaline. Cortisol deals with inflammation, allergic reactions in your body. When your body has a chronic illness, cortisol will elevate to try to reduce the inflammation <coughs> and, let's say, the oxidative stress that could be occurring from the illness. However, when cortisol is doing this for too long, it becomes harmful. High cortisol levels for too long cause body fat, particularly around the, the abdominal area, causes muscle loss, causes a depression in the immune system, and a depression in thyroid function. If cortisol is high, it typically elevates at night, and that's where it's the most problematic, because then it opposes melatonin, the sleep hormone, and gives you sleep problems. DHEA at the correct dose, either made by your body or taken in as a supplement, would seek to rebalance cortisol. 
we also have from the adrenal glands a host of hormones which are referred to as glucocorticoids. Gluco meaning glucose. So these are adrenal hormones which essentially raise glucose in your bloodstream. These hormones tell your liver to release stored sugar. The next hormone we'll discuss is one that's definitely troublesome for people with blood pressure problems. It's called aldosterone. Aldosterone is a hormone which retains sodium. It's made by a different part of the adrenal glands, a part that's called the medulla, and its main job is to retain sodium in your system so you don't lose salt. Now, in a person who's salt-sensitive or who has blood pressure problems, aldosterone can be troublesome. So here we have it. These are the basic adrenal hormones. Uh, these hormones from the adrenals also work with some hormones from the pancreas, uh, particularly there's a, well, as we know, the, the pancreas regulates insulin. Insulin is a hormone that's meant to control your glucose levels and keep them balanced. If your sugar goes too high, your body produces insulin and then that brings the sugar down. Then in order to balance this, the adrenal glands will release glucocorticoid hormones, which then bring the sugar back up. And that's keeping the balance. Then we have thyroid hormone. Very important because thyroid hormone's job is essentially to take the food that you eat, have it come into the cells of your body, and then burn that food up into energy and heat. Thyroid hormones also directly stimulate your liver to detoxify. Thyroid hormones work in conjunction with adrenal hormones. The thyroid gland and the adrenal gland essentially work together and seek to have a certain balance in order to control your metabolism. Metabolism being the rate of speed in which your body converts fuel, which would be food, into energy and heat. So now on the other side of the aisle, we have the reproductive hormones, which we'll go over in a little more detail. The reproductive hormones for the man, the more important ones, will be testosterone as the main hormone, and secondly, progesterone. Now, we all know testosterone helps build muscle in men. It's, if you're low in testosterone, you have problems uh, performing sexually. A man can become depressed. He can gain weight and lose muscle. These are all the effects of low testosterone. We all know with high testosterone, men or women can become very aggressive and manifest road rage and things of this nature. The interesting thing in a man about progesterone is that progesterone helps balance out the effects of estrogen on a man. I want to dispel a myth that's been perpetuated for so long regarding prostate health. Now, testosterone is often implicated in prostate problems. 
When men have prostate problems, they're also they're often given testosterone blockers. I want to give you insight into this because this is not exactly the truth, what's being occurred here. Now, men who have prostate problems are typically 50 and over. They're given drugs to block testosterone because it's been observed that if they take these drugs, their prostate problems get better. However, let's look at this as an equation. Men who are over 50 tend to have lower levels of testosterone, and they tend to have higher incident of prostate problems. Therefore, logic would tell us that as a man gets older and his testosterone drops, the lack of testosterone causes prostate problems. But that's not how it's being looked at. Because then the men are being given drugs to block the testosterone further. So there has to be more to this. Because the next equation that we could draw would be it's the men with the highest testosterone levels that are more apt to have a prostate problem. Therefore, they're given drugs to lower testosterone. Therefore, lowering their high testosterone helps their prostate. If that was true, the men with the highest incidence of prostate problems would be younger men who have the higher levels of, of testosterone. So what's really the truth here? Well, the truth is, as a man gets older, there's a process called aromatization. To aromatize horm hormones, particularly testosterone, means that the hormone gets converted to estrogen. So as a man gets older, he actually starts producing more estrogen than testosterone. Not in the sense of an absolute level, but relatively. M older men have higher levels of, of uh, estrogen than younger men. As this estrogen rises in the older men, it aggravates the prostate. Testosterone in different forms then further aggravate the prostate. It's actually estrogen that causes prostate problems in men, not testosterone. Because testosterone easily converts to estrogen, and if you block the testosterone, you're blocking the conversion of, of testosterone to estrogen, it appears that that's the reason why that would work. So theoretically, it does work, but it's working for the wrong reason stated. The reason why testosterone-blocking drugs work to help older men with prostate problems is the drug that blocks testosterone is also blocking the estrogen that the testosterone would be converted to. Progesterone in a woman balances and counter-effects estrogen. A simple way I like to look at estrogen is that estrogen as a hormone makes things grow. The reason why women have more estrogen than men is because women give birth to babies and the estrogen makes the baby grow. Unfortunately, estrogen also makes tumors grow, fibroids grow. Progesterone helps to block the negative effects of estrogen. Back to the older men with prostate problems, they benefit from taking some progesterone because it's going to block the negative effects of the estrogen they may accumulate. Therefore, progesterone can theoretically help a man's prostate. And you'll, we also see this is true in clinical practice.
hormones all relate to each other in terms of helping each other or antagonizing each other. Cortisol, prednisone, cortisone, these hormones all work together to reduce inflammation in the body. And when their actions become too assertive for too long, all the bad side effects that you get from them are counterbalanced by DHEA. Also, to some degree, thyroid hormone. Estrogen is counterbalanced by progesterone. So all the hormones have a synergistic and a non-synergistic effect with each other to some degree. The key that we're usually concerned with would be high cortisol, which the remedy becomes DHEA. We're concerned if melatonin drops too low, and at that point we want to see if cortisol is suppressing melatonin. The remedy there is to raise melatonin and perhaps raise DHEA to lower the cortisol that's suppressing it. Elevated estrogens, we would use progesterone to counterbalance, and we would also look to see how efficient the body is in methylization of the estrogen, which is the breakdown of the estrogen. Now, it's also interesting that all of these hormones have vitamins that they're associated to. Vitamin E is one of the more interesting ones. Vitamin E is responsible for the production of all hormones of the reproductive nature. And vitamin E also prevents the oxidation of adrenal hormones. So when you take vitamin E, not only are you helping your body to produce testosterone or estrogen, but you're also protecting your adrenal hormones like cortisol and DHEA. The vitamin E protects them from being oxidized or burned up. Vitamins like vitamin C, beta-carotene, niacin, and others help the body burn up excess hormones or leftover hormones so they don't continue to recycle. This would be called methylating the hormones. There is a whole list of nutrients that are involved in the methylization or methylizing hormones in particular. This takes place in the liver. Thyroid hormone helps stimulate the body to burn up these excess hormones. B12, folic acid, methionine, the, um, the sulfur-based amino acids are all involved in methylization or methylating these hormones. If your liver did not methylate or break down hormones, they would continue to pass through the liver and continue to circulate, and their effects wouldn't end. And as your body released more and more hormone, you would eventually have serious trouble from hormone excess. But the body balances this by having the liver break these hormones down. Minerals relate very strongly to hormones because minerals are directly involved in the synthesis of the hormones and the release of the hormones. Copper is the first one we'll discuss. 
Copper is heavily involved in the production and the release of estrogen. Copper is an estrogenic-related mineral. If your body has too much estrogen, you would want to avoid taking copper as a supplement unless your copper was quite deficient. Zinc relates to progesterone. Zinc helps the body elevate progesterone and utilize it. In a man, zinc and manganese are involved in the production of testosterone. There is the balance between zinc and copper, which kind of mimics the relationship between estrogen and progesterone, or testosterone and estrogen, which is very interesting. You could draw this, and it has been done. You can draw it even as a graph, and it would be fascinating to look at, or, or a wheel, let's say. You've seen these wheels that have different points and arrows going to different points. Well, you can easily uh, concoct one or look one up on the Internet, and it would show you the relation between these hormones and also the minerals involved. Toxic metals are also interesting in this, in the matter that toxic metals generally impede the production of hormones. Particularly, mercury has, a, has the effect of settling or storing in the thyroid gland, which inhibits the thyroid gland's ability to make its hormones. Copper, similar, in a similar fashion. Copper is a, is a great antagonist of thyroid hormones. Cadmium and nickel are very large antagonists of insulin production and very often testosterone and progesterone. Now, why that would be, if we start looking at this, you'll start to see how this is actually very simple. If zinc is very responsible and highly involved in the production of testosterone and progesterone, what would we then assume about cadmium and nickel? Well, they block zinc. Cadmium and nickel have an atomic weight, or I I believe it's the atomic number that's close to cadmium and nickel. Therefore, it can compete for storage in the body with with, uh, zinc. So if you have cadmium and nickel pretending to be zinc, and they store in the places that the zinc is used, but they're really not zinc, so they really can't do the job, you end up having cadmium and nickel suppressing the actions of zinc. So the performance needed by zinc is never accomplished, and if that performance happens to be making testosterone or progesterone, you're then out of luck if you're cadmium or nickel toxic. This is a very interesting thing because we now are looking not only at the vitamins and minerals which relate to the hormones, but we now can see from a negative side toxic elements and how they affect hormones. There's a whole list of substances that we would call xenobiotics, which essentially mean they're environmental toxins, which will affect your hormones. They will affect the hormone production they will adversely affect your body's ability to to detoxify hormones. But the most dangerous of the xenobiotics would be the ones that are estrogen-related. There are many maladies in this country which are now being recognized, especially in children, which are related to chemicals that our environment, unfortunately, is becoming saturated in 
which have estrogen-like effects. It mimics estrogen, therefore it tricks the body into thinking it's estrogen, and it ends up producing bad medical effects on children and people generally. In one way, if we had to say, is there a hormone on this planet that is killing people, we would say it is estrogen, which is quite an interesting dichotomy since estrogen ultimately is the hormone which gives life to a baby. But when you have too much or when you have the wrong kind, it becomes harmful. There are hundreds of forms of estrogen, which essentially are different types of synthetic chemicals that have been manufactured and used in all types of personal care items, in food, everywhere you could imagine. And these items very strongly mimic estrogen and therefore the body thinks it's estrogen and responds that way. If you go online, you can look up premature well, let's say, actually, let me put it a different way. Uh, there, there exists a syndrome in this country where young children go through adolescence prematurely. It has been, in some cases, called premature adolescence. There are various names for it. I think if you Googled premature adolescence, you'd probably get the most hits. In premature adolescent syndromes, the children are very sensitive to hormones, and they're particularly sensitive to these hormones that are in their environment, which mimic estrogen. Some of them may also mimic testosterone, but by far, they're outweighed by the ones that mimic estrogen. And these hormones will cause, or these, I'm not going to call them hormones, we'll say these hormone-like substances cause these children to start exhibiting symptoms of a much older age than they actually are in real time because these hormones are stimulating body functions. Remember we said the hormone was a chemical messenger that tells an organ or tissues to do something. Well, these xenobiotics are stimulating tissues and organs to grow and start to go through an adolescence far earlier than was intended. These are very toxic substances, and unfortunately, they're also responsible for much of the cancer that we have. These environmental xenobiotics, which are estrogen-like, and many of them can be plant estrogens, are responsible for a lot of the cancers that we have. One of the most dangerous ones is soy. And the reason why soy can be so dangerous is because its use is so widespread and if used in excess, the estrogen that's contained in, this, in the soy can be harmful. It's a big argument in the health field nowadays as to whether or not soy is good or bad. I'll give you two or three different perspectives because there is no really one answer. Generally speaking, soy contains estrogens. Uh, the estrogen type that soy has is more similar to estrone, which is the weaker of the three estrogens. And estrone, in a sense, can be helpful 
because estrone can occupy the estrogen receptor sites and stop the more advanced or aggressive forms of estrogen of getting in there and therefore overstimulating estrogen effects or functions. Uh, soy has been valued and liked by different practitioners because it contains these plant estrogens or phytoestrogens which are thought to protect you from the bad effects of more aggressive estrogens. So that's a viewpoint. The other viewpoint, unfortunately, is that if you have a soy-based diet, you're getting so much of these estrogens that you may not know what to do with them. It just could be simply too much. From, this, from the perspective of the thyroid gland, Soy is a very bad food for the thyroid gland. The reasons why is, number one, it's high in estrogens. Estrogens are antagonistic to thyroid function. The second is that estrogens will block thyroid hormone itself in its actual function at the cell site and the receptor. Soy also contains substances that are called thiocyanates. Thiocyanates are chemicals found in the soy which actually relate to cyanide and they are direct inhibitors of thyroid function. The vegetables, generally speaking, which are high in thiocyanates tend to be vegetables from the broccoli family and the brassica family. Many of these vegetables are consumed in large amount by people who are natively from the South. When you notice women from the South who become very overweight as they get older, it's typically due to low thyroid function or lower than ideal thyroid function from their diet because their diet is over, overloaded with these thiocyanates. All the foods, well, no, let me restate that. Most of the vegetables that are in the soul food family, which African Americans in the South will tend to eat and have as a staple in their diet, are all from the Brasisca family, all very high in thiocyanates. To run down a list rather quickly, just to give you a basic idea, uh, broccoli, cabbage, very high in thiocyanates, soy, very high in thiocyanates, Many of the bitter greens that are consumed in the South are all very high in thiocyanates. Brussels sprouts, high in thiocyanates. So these foods are bad because they inhibit thyroid function. Soy, however, is the one-two punch. Soy gives you the combination punch of having all those thiocyanates and, in addition, the estrogens. That puts it in a unique place as far as the foods go. Generally speaking, protein, animal protein, tends to stimulate the production of testosterone and most hormones. Vegetable protein, if it's soy-based, inhibits the production of hormones. So there's the contradiction. Many years ago, it was thought by vegetarians that the reason why vegetarians were more docile and not aggressive in an unruly way was because they didn't eat meat and they considered 
people who ate meat to be savages because the meat made them more aggressive. Well, I don't know about that in particular, but what I can tell you from a physiological standpoint is the vegetarian proteins that people will consume tend to inhibit the production of hormones where animal protein tends to stimulate the production of hormones. So if we want to make a comparison, the person who would be more aggressive would be the person with the higher hormones, and that would be the meat eater. So there it is. Lifestyle plays an important part in dealing with hormones. The more active you are, both in exercise and sexually, the higher your hormones will go. Men can elevate their hormones, particularly their testosterone, uh, by having sex. Sex, the sexual act, raises testosterone in men. I'm not quite sure the studies on women. I would say it's most likely the same. As does exercise. Exercise, to a degree, causes your body to, to make more hormones because those hormones are needed to help your body adjust and recover from the exercise. A man who does bodybuilding, or a woman, is going to raise their testosterone because the body knows it needs that testosterone to repair those muscles. Here's the downside. And my, myself, having been a former long-distance runner, I, I say this with regret to have to tell you this news, but as far as exercise goes, distance running in particular, or any really long type of aerobic exercise, tends not to be so good for your hormones. The best type of exercise for your hormones would be things like yoga, Pilates, or weightlifting. When you start getting into endurance sports like, like marathon running, triathlons, um, the long swims, the long biking that's done in the triathlon, these long endurance exercise sessions tend to elevate your cortisol, lower your DHEA, and lower your testosterone. You tend to lose muscle mass when you get involved in longer duration exercise as opposed to sprinting and bodybuilding and yoga and Pilates and things like that. So that's unfortunately the truth, not my design, but that is a fact. Now that doesn't mean you can't do these endurance, these endurance sports or workouts, but it's, this is why very often now in modern times, uh, these things are balanced with the other side of the coin. You'll see a lot of triathletes and marathon runners who now also work out with weights and do Pilates and do other things to compensate for that, to keep those hormones in balance so they're not just running a one-way flow, you see. So we have, at this point covered many aspects of hormones. The one thing we haven't covered, which is very interesting, are medications and hormones. And this is something which is very confusing. There's not a lot of data out there, in some cases, 
about how medications affect hormones, you would almost think in some way it's hidden. Usually the data on medications and hormones can be somewhat obvious because if it's a medication that's directly affecting a hormone, it will be stated so. I'm referring more to various medications that you not, wouldn't necessarily associate to a hormone. As an example, Coumadin or Warfarin. Um, these medications, I believe, are estrogenic. I believe they raise estrogen and perhaps lower testosterone, but I can't prove that. I can only say that from experience in observing people who are on those medications and watching their, their test results. Obviously, birth control pills are essentially estrogen supplements that are meant to um, revamp, let's say, a woman's menstrual cycle. It's, it's, uh, those medications are, are basically being used to take over the menstrual cycle and change it so that she has less chance of getting pregnant. We know that the drugs men take that block testosterone are usually prostate-related drugs. So from that aspect, it's obvious. What needs to be studied more is the effect of different medications which are generally not associated to hormones and see what effects they have. When in doubt, always ask your pharmacist if you're on some type of hormone replacement program and the program is not working out very well, if the program seems not to be working on you the way it works on everyone else, the first thing you would want to consider is all the nutrients, all the supplements you're taking. See how those supplements affect your hormones and then look at the medications you're on. Or if you're on any other type of medication, let's look at the medication and see if it possibly has an effect on your hormones. You probably have to look it up online and do some research into its physiology and if the if the pharmacist can't help you off the top of his head, then that's what you'll be obliged to do for yourself in order to find this out. But let's say, hypothetically, you are on a hormone replacement program. The first thing that would be obvious that most of us in my field would say is you, of course, only want to use bioidentical hormones. Now, this, this lecture was not generally intended to be candida-related because I wanted to give you more of a, a full look at hormones from many different aspects, not limited to candida. But as far as candida goes, when it comes to taking most hormones, especially the ones that are reproductive-related, like estrogen, progesterone, DHEA, perhaps testosterone, the better way to always take them is in a transdermal cream, and the, the secret of this is simply because transdermal creams are absorbed through your skin into your bloodstream. They bypass your digestive system, which is where the candida lives. When you take a pill or a trochee in your mouth, any substance in your mouth that contains the hormone that's meant to have this hormone go down your digestive tract, you stand the possibility that you're Candida is going to get a bath in this hormone, and certainly that may not be good. Hormones have a growing effect on candida. Estrogen, in particular, makes candida grow. 
So taking hormones orally that are estrogenic would be very bad if you had candida. So bioidentical hormones are always used, and we want to try to use wherever possible transdermal hormones because they're being rubbed into the skin. They're avoiding going down your alimentary canal or your digestive tract to give the candida a hormonal bath. I mentioned the trochee before, which is essentially something you put in your mouth that contains the hormone. Now, the, the design of the trochee is the hormone substance is supposed to be absorbed sublingually, which means under your tongue and through all the little blood vessels under your tongue and in your mouth. So it's not intended that it, uh, hormones from a trochee are going to go down your digestive tract, but it happens to be that a, a lot of them might. There's no guarantee that they will all be absorbed into your mouth, uh, into your bloodstream, from your mouth, rather. So there we have it, folks. I hope this has been as interesting to you as it has been to me in giving this uh, lecture today on hormones. Hormones are a fascinating thing. Hormones are the, re are the difference in aging. The, generally, the reason why one person ages faster or more poorly than another are hormones. There are other factors there, but when you really start to look at it, you start to see it's really hormone-related. Now, I just made a statement that the reason why one person ages more than another is hormonal. Somebody could counter that statement and say, well, no, it's also oxidative stress. It's also aging factors that occur with vitamins and nutrients and all this. And I would say, well, I certainly wouldn't disagree with that entirely. However, DHEA is the antioxidant hormone which is meant to balance all that. So a person who even has a bad lifestyle, who smokes cigarettes, who drinks excessive amounts of alcohol, who doesn't eat well and get a lot of his vitamins, if, and I'm sure you all know people like this, if they are good DHEA producers, they may not show their age because that DHEA is an antioxidant in a hormone form that your body is making internally. Everyone has a story about some friend or relative they know who smokes a pack of cigarettes a day, drinks a, a quart of scotch a day, ate a high-fat diet, and they lived to be 104 without very many health problems. And yet you'll have some other person who does everything right, is like practically lives in the health food store, and they're struggling along. Well, many years ago, no one really knew how to answer these questions. Nowadays, we know the answer is very simple and very obvious. You're dealing primarily with two subject matters. One is genetics, which is very complex because there could be many complex reasons why genetically one person is able to withstand bad lifestyle and do very well compared to another. Their genetics may have many systems, many different chemical processes involved. And the other subject is hormones. The great trick that God plays on us is as we get older, our hormones get lower. And being older and thinking that you're older 
contributes to your hormones getting old, uh, uh, excuse me, getting lower. Lower hormones cause you to age. It's in parallel, as your hormones get lower, your hydrochloric acid secretions from your stomach get lower. Those are the two biggest tricks that were played on us by aging. Lower stomach acid and lowered hormones. As your stomach acid gets lower, you can't absorb the nutrients from your diet as well. As your hormones get lower, there are less of those chemical messengers being sent out to your tissues and organs telling them to perform, to repair themselves, to heal, to grow. Thank you very much for joining me today, everyone. This is Michael Biamonte with a, another episode of the Candida Chronicles where we've discussed hormones. We've gone over hormones and their relationship to each other. Vitamins and minerals, their relationship to hormones, toxic metals, and environmental toxins. We've looked at food, lifestyle, and we've touched a bit on medications and hormones. Try to give you a very complete look today at all the aspects of hormones. Thank you for joining us. Tune in again, please, next Friday for another edition of the Candida Chronicles. And please remember to go on Amazon.com and purchase your copy of the Candida Chronicles book, which is the first book in a five-book series written by yours truly on the subject of candidiasis. That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. Michael holds a Doctorate of Nutropathy and is a New York State Certified Clinical Nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. Welcome to the...